I need it to be next Wednesday already. Let's see. Let's <laughs> yes. go, baby. Let's go. To Krypton to Alderaan. I'm Joey, your star, star, wars, wars, lover, <laughs> lover. And with me is Royish Good Looks. Hello, podcast, podcast, podcast. And Joey, hello. <laughs> hello. We're the podcast that analyzes nerdy pop culture stuff, but it's mostly Star Wars. In this episode, we will be talking about The Mandalorian, Chapter 18, The Minds of Mandalore. But first, Hey, subscribe so you don't miss any of our Star Wars coverage. We're doing weekly Bad Batch and Mandalorian reviews. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Find us on socials anywhere. Just search Krypton to Alderaan. We're going to be asking a bunch of questions this episode. It almost inevitably turns into kind of a Q&A. So let us know all your A's on socials. And we're going to hear all of our A's about the minds of Mandalore next. Okay, here is the synopsis, not my synopsis, for The Mandalorian Chapter 18, The Minds of Mandalore. The Mandalorian and Grogu explore the ruins of a destroyed planet. Hard stop. You know, I give them credit because I think the title of the episode was pretty meaty on its own. That mm. It didn't really need a description anyway. Like, all right, let's go into the mines. Yeah. And thank you for giving me the opportunity once again to put the picture of meat on in our YouTube video for this. Meaty. I love it when we describe stuff as meaty. Meaty Mon Mothma time. <laughs> meaty Mines of the Moria time. <laughs> meaty Mines of Moria. Different mines. I've never been to this mine before. <laughs> Did you think the rest of the episode was meaty? I didn't want this episode to end. I thought it kept spewing out the... It was just an awesome adventure. Yeah, I didn't want to keep going with the metaphor, but it was... (laughs) I love this adventure, and I wanted to keep going deeper into all the, you know, crevices on Mandalore. If that was a level in a video game, I'm going down every single turn to see, like, what cool artifacts are down there. I'm taking pictures of all the uh, insignias on the wall. I'm reading all the uh, the plates. Welcome to the Civic Center established in 19 BBY. Yep, it's Mandalore Snap, the video game for Nintendo 64, where you're just in a cart and you're taking pictures. Also, I think The Crevices of Mandalore is the name of the next episode. (laughs) So I loved this episode. Uh, I wanted it to keep going as well, especially with the that moment at the end, but we'll get there. You had mentioned the adventure, and that was actually my favorite line from this episode. At the beginning, they're flying away from Tatooine, which was beautiful with the fireworks. It's Boon to Eve. It looked incredible. But then Din goes to Grogu. All right, kid, are you ready for an adventure? Which is a gotcha moment for me. For whatever reason, that question, that idea just always gets me. The only good part of the Hobbit movie is when Bilbo's like, I'm going on an adventure. Not the only good part. I actually like that movie. But anyway, that whole idea really gets me. So I loved that part. Yeah, I agree. I love seeing that was very interesting that Boonta Eve is like some kind of celebration on Tatooine. I wasn't aware of that. I thought it was just a pod race, but it's more than that. Apparently, you're talking about the visuals. Stark contrast of the like, you know, New Year's Eve celebration or so on Tatooine. And then we go to Mandalore and it's like stormy weather, 
desolate. And Tatooine is a desert, but like you said, it looked kind of beautiful at night there with all the fireworks going off. We go to Mandalore and it is wrecked, man. We don't even know if we can breathe the air. It, you know, it kind of looks like Krypton or something. It's like unfamiliar and dangerous territory. It does look like Krypton. Interesting. But also, desolation aside, that was the second moment of this episode where I was like, holy crap, this episode is beautiful. When they get through the atmosphere, they break through the atmosphere and we see the N1 over Mandalore. It just looked so good. I loved it. I loved seeing that. It's so cool. Something interesting that I thought about is before we started recording, you had texted me and said there wasn't a whole lot of dialogue this episode or something like that. And, you know, the dialogue that did exist in this episode, what did you think? There was a lot of exposition this episode. Well, so you and I were re-watching the episode before recording, basically. And my headspace was like, I knew going into the rewatch that maybe I could like skip through and just like watch the parts where they're speaking. I kind of wanted to just read the script. There was dialogue, obviously, but I just felt a lot of the dialogue was like, wow, these are the minds. These are the creatures in the minds. Everything was very short and sweet. And it gave you all the information you needed, whether it was like exposition-y or not. But none of it you had to read into. It was all just pointing out kind of the obvious stuff. And also a couple moments that seemed to repeat again. Just like last episode, dialogue that we've heard before, plot points we've heard before. Bo-Katan says to Grogu, you think your father was the only Mandalorian? You already met Grogu last season. He knows who you are. You rescued him. <laughs> so right. that I was like, why are we putting that dialogue in there? But very simple and polar opposite of the last live action series and or where the dialogue's so dense, you know, and you've got to pay attention to every word to really get everything out of it. And... You know, we talk about Bad Batch being like the kids show. I feel like Mandalorian is like the kids show. Like that's even easier dialogue than the animated series in a way, to me mm. at least. It's not that I didn't like it. I just noticed how short and to the point it was. Yeah, I'm sure it's very hard to write when you're dealing with two characters who can't necessarily communicate in the traditional way. Like you're dealing with a parent and a baby and like you have to fill the void with something as the writer or the director for the audience. So I'm sure it's very hard. At one point, Din says, look, that passage heads down. And I'm just like, come on, man. It's a classic Star Wars. You can write this shit, but it's a whole other thing to speak it out loud. It kind of was just some exposition and felt like when Din was doing it, maybe exposition, but like in a fatherly caring way. But then later when Bo does it, repeating sort of the same walk through the mines, it just sounded more like Bo reflecting than it did exposition. Like she's telling Grogu stuff, but it certainly just felt like more inward reflection. Maybe I'm projecting a little bit there, but did you get that vibe at all? Yeah, she looks at the city. My family used to rule here. Did she need to tell Grogu that or did she need to tell the audience that or was she thinking that herself? Maybe all three of those things. You bring up a good point, though, when you're talking to Grogu that he doesn't speak, you know, basic, but they sort of communicate. She can't talk to him like you would talk to R2 or like Chewbacca. You just get one side of the conversation, but the character is hearing the responses of things. So I think maybe that's part of the issue there, too, is they can't have a conversation. A little bit different when Bo 
meets up with Din and they do have a little bit of back and forth. Yeah, really in the rewatch, it was very clear that the exposition pretty much ends there. When Bo and Din meet up and they're communicating, it was much more expositional than it had been previously. And maybe that's because it's just easier to communicate that way. I will say that I really, really loved Grogu learning from both Din and Bo. It was just so cool to see like Din teaching Grogu about a Mandalorian has to understand maps and then Bo explaining Mandalorian stuff. Do you think that Grogu will learn about Tar Vizsla, the original wielder of the Darksaber, the Mandalorian Jedi? For listeners, here's a great summation of Tar Vizsla. If you go watch Rebels Season 3, Episode 15, Trials of the Darksaber, it starts off with a cool little animation of Tar Vizsla and the Darksaber and what it meant to Mandalore. So what do you think? Will will Grogu have to learn about that and like figure out how to become a Jedi and a Mandalorian? That's the cool thing about him being, you know, quote unquote baby, that he's still developing and seeing your father's not the only Mandalorian. So he's going to get to grow up seeing two sides of the coin rather than just the, you know, this is the way of things, you know. So obviously Bo mentioned, like, I've seen a lot of Jedi. We used to fight side by side. Maybe there's some foreshadowing there. I was thinking, like, what if Grogu takes up the Darksaber or something? But, like, that seems like that would be a wild visual for the way the show is kind of designed at the moment. But, yeah, that thought certainly crosses the mind that he's still using the Force. He'll probably get stronger with it. Bo mentions that as well. Like, how good are you with the Force? You must be really good at it. And now I thought that was also kind of weird way for someone in Star Wars to look at a force user of like, how good are you with it? You know, Uh, but maybe that's the way a a warrior would think of your skill. You know, how good are you with a blaster? You know, how good are you with the force? Maybe that'll play into it and maybe not. But either way, that's a really nice thought. What will Grogu become within those cultures that he's exposed to both? You know, I do like that. I think, you know, we bashed on Grogu coming back. He goes away. We bring him back in another show and it's just odd. And Having him back is he's the Hurley of the group. You know, he Mm. brings so much heart and soul without him. If this was just Din going down this mine, I think it would have been a little bit too brooding and depressing. And he's still trying to find his way, but he doesn't have, you know, his kid. Mm Bo-Katan says, your kid, you know, and like you said, him raising Grogu, he loves Grogu. You'll never be lost if you can read a map. Like, what a great father, right? That's (laughs) exactly how you need to be raising your child. I picked up those moments. I thought that was really, really nice, too. Always keep your Atlas book in your car. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I really love it. I I also really love that we're getting these two Star Wars shows with kids in them as main characters. And we get to see that. We get to see this like truly wonderful the mind of a child is and all that stuff. Like they are the conscience. They don't have the burden of all of this other stuff that these adults in their lives do. So they are the conscience. They may be more like ethically well bound kind of thing. It's really nice to see. It's a great, great perspective, I think, in both of these shows, in, in Mandalorian and Bad Batch. Speaking of burdens that the adults in these shows have, obviously Bo-Katan has been through the ringer, sometimes of her own devices and sometimes not. Let's back up a little bit to when Din gets captured in the mines by the giant robot cyborg thing. Maybe we'll get to that a bit later because I've got some questions. But 
Din tells Grogu to go get Bo on a whole other planet. Like, go back on the ship and learn what I taught you to go get Bo-Katan. And he does, Grogu does, and then Bo, like, comes out onto the platform to, like, give Din a piece of her mind, but then asks Grogu what happened to him, and she goes to help him. Why do you think she goes to help him? Do you think it's because Din was the only one around? He literally, like, came to her and said he'd join her. Even though they might want different things, he's, like, essentially the only Mandalorian left by her side. Or... Is it because he has the Darksaber and if he gets lost in the binds, she loses the Darksaber? You know, it's, what, what do you think? I think there could be a few things there. The fact that Grogu shows up, you know, she was like, oh, this guy, let's get rid of him for good, which I wonder what yeah. she meant by that. Like, is she going to fight him then? Or, yeah. you know, maybe she's like, I'll take the Darksaber from him now and we'll end this or something. Who knows what she meant by that statement? But then she sees Grogu. And so she's like, oh, where is he? to find out that he actually went to Mandalore. Like, we didn't see the scene in between when they download the information from R5 and they decide to go. They smash cut right there. So there was a moment where she was like, holy cow, he went to the mine. The robot was in the mine, you know, or in in the city. So they could have got a lot of interesting information from that that we didn't get to see. And also Grogu's there. So what, is she going to now be responsible for Grogu? So yeah. at the very least, she's got to return the child back to him. I don't know. That is interesting because she, she did not hesitate to pick up the Darksaber. She clearly still relishes the idea of using it, and she's pretty badass with it. She didn't say that out loud, but they did show that she still has the interest in it, and she's very salty to have not had it in the last episode. That had to have been there, but very interesting that she was like, oh, this guy's back. Let's get rid of him for good, and then you go save him. There's some, I sense the conflict deep within you. Yeah, it was, it's really interesting to see her then wield the Darksaber and to see Din have just, like, she's so much better at it than Din. Something that's great about, like, the physical acting of the show is that they make it look heavy when Din is using the Darksaber. Physically, like, it feels hard for him to do. With Bo, it's, it's natural to her. She believes that she is supposed to use it, and she uses it. It was really cool to see them both use it in combat this episode. But here's the question that I thought of immediately when Bo is saving Din from the spider robot thing. Did Bo just win the Darksaber? Did she, win, did she just win the Darksaber in combat? If I find 20 bucks laying on the ground, <laughs> did I earn those 20 bucks? Well, by the rules they set up in the end of the second season, it seems to me that the robot bested Din in combat and took the Darksaber, and then Bo bested the robot in combat and took the Darksaber. So, I think I'm no Mandalorian. I don't know the way. I haven't read the rule book. I didn't bathe in the living waters. But it seems that Bo just won the Darksaber. And we know that I'm team Bo-Katan ruling, give her the Darksaber and let's go already. Was there a scene that she was like, here's your stupid sword back? You know, like we didn't get to see what happened with it after the fight. Did she just drop it back on the ground? Did she surrender it to Din? So that's interesting if that's going to be another scene yet to come. If we pick up in the mines and, you know, Din doesn't even realize that he had lost it, but they were walking together. So that seems odd that that would not have come up. Maybe we're just to assume that he got it back or is she keeping it? Does Din even care? Because at first in season two, he's like, take it. 
I don't want this thing. Yeah, that's interesting. They didn't directly have a scene to address that yet. Well, when she's making him the pog soup or whatever she calls it, he gets up and he starts saying, I have to go to the living minds to be redeemed or whatever he says. And we see him like hooking the Darksaber back up to his belt. So she obviously like put it next to him when she moved them wherever she did to make the soup. So maybe she's like honor bound. Maybe she doesn't feel like she won it in combat. And she so she forfeits it. She voluntarily gives it back to him. But it just seemed like we could take this opportunity maybe to have Bo-Katan win the Darksaber back. But maybe it'll come up later, like you said. I don't really want her to challenge him. I want them to be teammates. Yeah. I don't think great things are accomplished by immediately looking at your boss and be like, I'm coming for you. I want your job. I don't think that is the way. So I would like her to maybe teach Din, much like in in Rebels, you know, not to hark back to animated shows. I don't know if everyone's listening is caught up with those or not. But uh, doesn't Kanan show how to use the blade and, you know, move with it so it's not so heavy and you're not fighting against it? And maybe Din needs some of that training from Bo-Katan. I think they're setting something up there, but they didn't address it. And maybe we're reading a little bit too much into it. I do think so. I I have said before that I wanted Sabine Wren from Rebels to come and show Bo how to use the Darksaber like Kanan showed her. I thought that would be a great like full circle because Sabine was very fighting the blade, just like Din is doing. So who better to teach than someone who learned how to actually wield it having gone through the struggles. But now, as of this episode, I'm much more on board with, like you're saying, Bo teach Din how to wield the blade. I have a question about that coming up, but I also think something you said, I'm coming for your job with your boss type of thing. Bo references in this episode, the problem with Mandalorians is always fighting each other. It's what left them vulnerable to the Empire. They were always fighting each other. And Bo-Katan was a big part of that. We saw it in the Clone Wars. We saw it in Rebels. She's kind of always been dealing with fighting with her own people. Maybe she's coming around to... She doesn't even want to fight for the Darksaber. She's sick of Mandalorians fighting each other. That's why she's sitting alone in that castle. She's tired of fighting. Her sister was the ruler of Mandalore. There were feuding classes of Mandalorians. Her sister got killed. She's just sick of it all. That could be good reasoning behind her just kind of giving the Darksaber back to Din. I agree. It took her some time maybe to realize that she had to lose her clan. Man, I wish she would explain some of this to Din, though. Maybe we'll get it in these next couple episodes about, you know, having had this shared experience in the mines together. I think that probably opened up both of their eyes. Uh, and Maybe mm-hmm. we'll reinvigorate some of those conversations. Like in season two, I really wish instead of her being like, damn, you got the saber and I didn't. And then Moff Gideon like is like, ooh, ha ha, you didn't get what you wanted. He's got it. Oh, no. Instead of that, like we were talking about last episode, Bo could have said, Din, that idol is very important and I need you to understand and become the leader. It has to be you, your destiny. Also, poetry moment here. He says, I need to fulfill my obligation in the minds. And I was like, man, yeah. I wish he said destiny because that's like, it's a little <laughs> more Star Wars. But interesting that he's, that was the way that he had phrased it. I have an obligation to redeem yeah. myself in the minds. You know, he has some sort of prophecy that he wants to fulfill. Mm-hmm. It's his mindset within the Children of the Watch. Much like Bo-Katan saying, how good are you with the force? She's a warrior. How good can you use it? Like you were saying, it's the same language. He believes it is his obligation. 
Not necessarily his destiny, but he has to do this. As far as explaining to Din, maybe Bo does need to teach both Din and Grogu about the history of the Darksaber and ruling Mandalore, but she's obviously so hesitant to go to Mandalore in the first place. She's obviously triggered when she's there by what she's telling Grogu. And then when she rescues Din, she's telling him about having taken the creed herself, and she was part of the royal family, and she says they loved watching the princess recite the Mandalorian tenants as her father looked on proudly. That line specifically, I was like, is she talking about herself, or is she talking about her sister? For anyone who didn't watch The Clone Wars, Bo-Katan had a sister, Satine, who ruled Mandalore. She was the ruler of Mandalore when Bo was in Death Watch. But Bo has never mentioned Satine. She said they loved watching the princess, but there were two. Like, why is she avoiding that? Was she talking about Satine and not herself in that sentence? Maybe you're right. Maybe based on their shared experience at the end of this episode, she will open up more. Or I think it's just as likely that she'll close off more. On top of that, she says her father died defending Mandalore and then Din pauses for a second. He kind of hangs his head and he says, this is the way. Bo-Katan rolls her eyes because she's like, yeah, okay, it's so adorable. Yeah, the traditions Mm. and whatnot. You asked before recording, any notes on the music? I don't think there's music in that moment. They stop and Din pays his respect to her father. And he's like remorseful about it. That's what I assume you mean. This is the way. He's paying his respects. He's remorseful. Your father died defending Mandalore. Bo initially kind of rolls her eyes and Grogu's looking at her and maybe Grogu's thinking like, you're supposed to say this is the way. You didn't say it back. I love you, I know, or something. She didn't She didn't <laughs> respond. She rolled her eyes and then she says to Grogu, what are you looking at? Or something. And I think that's part of the chipping away of the ice there that she's not there yet, but they're planting seeds that even though she's like, you're in this cult, but he's still being respectful of her and the history there. I'll throw it back to you. I thought... This is my reaching here, but maybe there's some foreshadowing there of like, Din dies defending Mandalore. Here he is with one of the last remaining Mandalorian princesses or whatever, and he hears about this father that died defending Mandalore, and he says, this is the way. That is what you do. That's part of our culture. And Din's got the Darksaber, so he's either going to lead, bring him back to glory, die trying. Did you read any of that into that scene? It's very interesting. I read it the opposite way. Again, in that scene, Bo does not mention Satine, her sister, who also kind of died defending Mandalore. And so what I took from that, Din says, this is the way. And Bo maybe being like, well, maybe it shouldn't be the way. Foreshadowing maybe Bo dying to defend Mandalore. Maybe it is the Kree's destiny in terms of Star Wars to die defending Mandalore like her father did, like her sister did. All she's wanted to do is rule, and maybe that's what ruling Mandalore has come to mean. So I thought that it might be foreshadowing her dying to defend Mandalore. I thought it was a powerful scene. There's obviously something to that. At least, if nothing else, I liked that it showed how much honor Din still carries, and maybe that will mean something to Bo-Katan and the greater Mandalorians. I think there's a lot more to that, like you're saying, and it really is influenced by the end of the episode. So let's get into that. Where Bo, I think now, can go either way here. Was there a tritone? 
Hey, that's a callback from one of our previous episodes. So Din goes to bathe in the living waters, seeking penance, and gets either pulled in by something or just kind of steps off the ledge and falls and sinks to the bottom because he's wearing a suit of armor. Din's kind of a Mando in distress throughout this. I mean, it was just incredible to see Bo-Katan be so much more competent of a fighter than Din throughout this entire episode. Bo jumps in the water to save Din. First of all, or second of all, whatever of all I'm on at this point, jetpacks underwater look incredible. But she doesn't hesitate. She just jumps right in. And then we see her rescue Din and they see the mythosaur, which Bo had just got done saying that she thought was a myth, a legendary creature, and became the sigil of the planet Mandalore because of these myths. But then she sees that it is real. So my question is, Will that renew her faith in Mandalorians and her people? Or will that push her further away? Kind of like, first the Darksaber chose Din. Now the Mythosaur has chosen Din. Din is chosen by Mandalore. Will that push Bo further away or bring her back? What do you think? She was just laughing at that, that it's like it's a tall tale. She said it was folklore. Maybe folklore is written on the monument there. Then she witnesses it for real. I don't know if that's similar to Rey touching Luke's lightsaber and having a vision and then immediately rejecting it and saying, I don't want any part of this. This is too much to handle. Or if her faith will then be renewed. I mean, how could it not after you see that? You're like, whoa. But I guess you're right that it could be that Ray situation that she'll reject it after that because she still is, she doesn't want to believe in it anymore. I think that has to restore the faith though. There's something to that moment of what do each of them believe now? I think that will embolden Din I guess you're right. I didn't think that that would push Bo the opposite direction. I would have to believe that they're both in together now. They share that experience. And like you said, maybe Bo will be like, that shows you. It pulled you down there. I don't know if if Din is going to tame the mighty Mythosaur, but I love that. And calling back to, you know, episode one with Queel. Queel says. He brings it up in episode one, which is like, that's amazing that we're calling back to this. This isn't like, you know, a fan service moment. Quill mentions it. You don't have to know anything about the, you know, holiday special or whatever this the Mythosaur originally showed up in. But Quill says, your people rode the mighty Mythosaur. Of course you can ride the Blurg. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I love that connection there. Ah, this is interesting. I love these rhetorical questions that we we can't, we don't know what she's thinking. I think that they they have to inevitably team up though. How could you not seeing a mystical creature underwater and you're like, it doesn't exist. And then you see it. Or are they like, did you, you were knocked out. You didn't see what you thought you saw. If she's in total yeah. denial of it, that might get a little bit, that uh, would be hard to deal with if she's going to deny it. And Din's like, that was there. And then there's still some discourse there. But what yeah. a great scene either way. It was maybe the third time in this episode where I said out loud, this is amazing. But I do think it's a question like, will Bo accept it? Will it revitalize her faith or will she be jealous? Will she go down the dark path of of being jealous of Din? And will it affect her ability to wield the Darksaber? She's so confident right now. We said last week, like, she's lost her faith in herself and her people. But she obviously is still confident enough. She believes she should rule. She could still wield the Darksaber. She used it very well and fluidly. It wasn't heavy to her at all. Do we think that this new event, seeing the mighty Mythosaur questioning her beliefs, she thought it was a myth, Will that impact her ability to wield it? Will we see her pick it up again and her struggle with it? 
I'm pretty excited to see all of this unfold, obviously. I mean, come on. I do love these questions. And the armor said, you know, the mythosaur will rise again and bring in a new age of Mandalore. So there is a little bit of a prophecy thing there. And I would love to maybe not see Din ride the mighty mythosaur. Like, it would be cool if it was just an external thing that they maybe respect because we're seeing a lot of, like, I love it when Star Wars has a respect for its creatures and animals and is nice to them. And it would be cool to see maybe the mythosaur unify the Mandalorian people and unify Mandalore and all the creatures on Mandalore. They're attacked by what Bo ends up calling the Alamites, which then she expresses they used to live in the wastelands outside of our cities. Like, are the Alamites the indigenous people of Mandalore and you, the Mandalorians, were colonizers and dis... There was very much of those vibes to that whole conversation. So I'm hoping that the mythosaur and now the goal of this all is unifying Mandalore, bringing balance to all of Mandalore. You know what? Like the Bendu. Maybe the mythosaur can can act as the Bendu for the Mandalorian. I love it. You know, I love Lost. I feel like maybe it's a little bit like Jacob's Cabin or something too. Like only certain people get to see these mystical things and then they know, oh my God, I had this experience and I will take this and bring this back to the people. I will now pull them up with me. But they didn't have the experience. Nobody else saw it. I think you wanted to get to this with the armorer. You know, Din now bathed in the waters. So does he come back and he's like, I bathed in the waters. Let me back in the clan. By the way, I saw the mythosaur. I'm going to reunite our people. If that goes over well, if Bo's involved with that and has to like vouch for him, because didn't mention like, how do I prove if I can prove it to you? So how does he prove it? Like, did he take a photo? Like, is yeah. he take a screenshot through his visor when he saw the mythosaur? Or is Bo going to return as well? Is she respected within the Death Watch clan? I don't know. Or the children of the watch, whatever they call them. There's still something there. We can't answer that question either. You know, where how yeah. does this all play out? I need it to be next Wednesday already. Let's see. Let's <laughs> yes. go, baby. Let's go. The armorer does not respect Bo-Katan. She believes that Bo-Katan is the reason that Mandalore is uninhabitable or is cursed. So I don't think Bo could have the respect to be able to vouch for Din. Also, Din went in the water, but he didn't finish the creed. Much like Ragnar, whatever the kid's name was in the first episode, didn't finish the creed, was attacked by a giant monster. So are we going to see Din return to the armorer and her not accept his penance? You and I are kind of always looking for like, what will be the catalyst to Din realizing that this is not a healthy relationship? And if he goes back and the armorer doesn't accept this, what he has done, then that might be something. Think of this, if it goes so far as the armorer has cast that kid out, because the kid didn't finish the creed, then that would be obviously the, the catalyst for Din to say, well, that's kind of messed up. Do you think there's any, do you think that's possible? Yeah, we can't answer these yet. It remains to be seen. One question I have for you, they say Mandalore is cursed and in the episode, he says, oh, it's not cursed. You can breathe the air. And maybe there's like weird, like post-apocalyptic creatures now. Like it kind of looked like if those creatures were there beforehand, that they're now like radioactive or something. Maybe that's how they were before all the crazy events that occurred, but it obviously is still destroyed and there's it's not what it used to be. Bo-Katan uh, in episode one says there's nothing left there. And is there nothing 
left there. Bo sees, oh, there's still creatures. I wonder what else survived. The city's still there. It's just destroyed. You could bring it back to life. And the mythosaur is there, the thing that like built the entire civilization, you know, or what it's all, all about. So there has to be something there when he goes back to his clan and explains, I was there. Is there nothing left of Mandalore? Is that the past or can it be our future? You know, what, what do you think about that line? If there's nothing left there, they were in fact there and it's not, it's not totally gone. Yeah. I think that both the armorer and Bo are avoiding Mandalore. And so Bo says there's nothing left because that's what she has to believe. She has to believe that because she failed many times. We've seen her fail. She does not feel like she can go back to Mandalore. She's more scared of going back and failing, I think, than ruling. So she has to come up with this, there's nothing left there for us. You know what I mean? And convince herself of that and try to convince other Mandalorians of that as well. The armor, I think, is also trying to get Din to avoid going to Mandalore. That, I don't know why. I have some crazy, whacked-out, left-field theories as to why, but I don't think we don't have an answer for that yet. But I hope we get one soon. And I hope there is a reason. Maybe she's just, maybe she genuinely believes it's cursed. Or maybe she's a cult leader that believes as much as any cult leader does in what they're saying to the people in their cult. But for Bo, I do think it's more trying to convince herself that she can't go back there. We have to go back. Yeah. And then when she is forced to go there, she says, oh, well, there is still stuff here. There is still life here. And she sees the myth soar. And like we said, that might change things. It also might be, who knows? We're getting more into the Empire's cloning stuff. And the charts said that Mandalore was inhospitable. So maybe the Empire is trying to get people to avoid Mandalore and using it as an experimental cloning ground. And who knows? That's one of my whacked out left field theories. But I guess we'll see. We know that they're cloning giant monsters. So that would be fun, huh? What do you think? That's definitely <laughs> a conspiracy theory of sorts, but that's that's funny. That's like a whole other podcast, the uh, really left, left field uh, theories for everything. Yeah, yeah. Stay tuned for more left field theories. Has nothing to do with baseball or whatever that saying is from. Okay, one last quick question. Royce, did you think this was going to be the plot of the entire season? I honestly thought that getting to Mandalore and bathing in the waters was going to maybe take a bit longer than it did. Yeah, no, they didn't jump right to a side quest. Like you said, he wasn't looking for IG-88. We went to Tatooine, but we left right away. We know we needed a droid to test the air. They dusted their hands real quick there. We didn't like belabor on Tatooine. That was welcomed that we didn't spend a whole episode in transit. Again, we're getting right to the, the meat and the potatoes of the story. I mean, this is season three, dude. So if if they had planned this out ahead of time, which maybe they planned some things and had to redo some things because Grogu's back when we literally just gave him away three episodes ago, technically. <laughs> We're not letting it go. I'm, do, I'm doing my best with it. I, and I'm glad that he's back for, for certain reasons. But when you're thinking about the grand plan, like this is season three, so we can't be goofing around too much. You know, I get mm -hmm. with the Bad Batch when it's one 16-episode season you do a couple of side stories. And with this, you know, maybe the next episode can be a little bit less heavy that they're now traveling to get back to, you know, Bo-Katan goes back to Kavala. Din tries to get back to 
the clan. And that might be one of these traveling across the galaxy and we have to battle pirates along the way. Oh, right. The pirates. I forgot about the pirates. They could come back. You know, they got a grudge, you know. Oh, drats. They foil. They get, they'll bring that back at some point <laughs> for sure. Yep. But we went from episode one to episode two, the minds of Mandalore. They brought it up and they went right there. And holy cow, there's a mythosaur. Like what? Mm -hmm. This is how could you ask for more? They're crushing it so far. Agreed. I thought the plot of this episode was going to take most of this season. Getting to the mines, figuring it out, seeing the mythosaur. That's a lot. We've talked about it throughout this podcast, so it's not necessarily a question I want to ask right now. But the idea of like, what now? What next? It's impossible to answer. But I didn't. I thought that this was going to be what next. So I'm stoked to see what happens next. Obviously, I would have been anyway. But to think that they packed all of this in this episode and it's only episode two, the potential energy that this has is incredible. Yeah, if it keeps going up, it's going to be a really fun, fun season. So I think it's safe to say we're excited for more. All right, listeners, we would love to hear what you thought about this episode, where you think the season's going. Hey, at the end of episode one, way back in season one, Grogu shows up. We didn't know Grogu was going to show up, and that set this whole whole ship off sailing. So where are we going this season? What if he gets a baby mythosaur? What if he does? Like you said, we don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's going, but we would love to hear your conspiracy theories, though. Wherever you like the social media, we are there. So make sure to like, share, subscribe, comment. We would love to hear from you. Hey, we're also going to have a Bad Batch episode review coming up shortly as well. And we'd love to have you back for that. Thanks for listening to the end of the show. I have been Royce. I've been Gar Saxon. And we have been Krypton, Krypton 2. Two. Oh, to the right. Oh, another baseball reference.